Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. I got an amazing uh, joke for you. Knock, knock. Who's there? Yeah. Yahoo. What are you so excited about? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. Humor in quotes. You just got a joke from indie rock star Kurt Vile. That'll help break the ice. He'll launch an East Coast tour next month in support of his latest album. It's called Believe I'm Going Down. Later, we'll speak with actor Brie Larson. She's up for an Oscar for her starring role in the movie Room. Also coming up, hip-hop folk artist Rory DJs the party of the future. Mary Louise Parker, star of the TV show Weeds, reads an open letter to a man she's never met, and we pose your etiquette questions to none other than feminist icon Gloria Steinem. Yes, and if all that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in November. Seems like just yesterday we were airing this and dreaming of leftover turkey. Mm. Back then we started, as always, with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Cyclone Chapala made a rare landfall in Yemen. Kansas City waited 30 years for their royals to win another World Series. The proposed amendment to legalize marijuana failed in Ohio yesterday. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Rebecca Lehrer. She is co-founder of the Mashup Americans, which is a podcast and website about identity and culture. Rebecca, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I want to talk about a new super creature, the koi wolf. Does it mean that it's very shy? That's exactly right. No, actually, (laughs) well, I'm not sure my pronunciation is right. Uh, Koi wolf, it's a coyote wolf dog hybrid. Oh, my goodness. Mostly coyote, some wolf, some dog. Seems to have been evolving over the last 50 years in the northeast um, of the U.S. and in Canada. So is this thing extra special strong? Is it going to eat us? <laughs> I Hopefully it will not eat you, but it's definitely bigger. It's about twice the size of a normal coyote, mm. um, stronger. They actually have adapted howls, you guys. Meaning? Wow. So a coyote sort of I'm not going to do my coyote howl impression for you, but it has a yippy sound, and they've combined in the wolf howl to really kind of be more aggressive and more scary. Man, they're like, this will freak them out. Yeah, got (laughs) them. So I'm guessing the dog part, they didn't adopt the body of a dachshund or anything, right? No, I think it's like a Doberman. Yeah, the the scary kind. I mean, the dog piece is actually their adaptability to cities. Oh, man. They're really comfortable with people and noise. If you thought hipsters were bad, no. Now we're, now we're in for oh, it. Oh, those Kai wolves are gentrifying everything. <laughs> they already have beards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our globally recognized history lesson with a chaser of booze. First, the history. This week back in 1512, Michelangelo's frescoes on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel were unveiled for the first time. Though a joy to look at, they weren't fun to paint. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. If you look up the term reluctant genius in the dictionary, there ought to be a picture beside it of Michelangelo. Back in 1508, he'd done some sketches and paintings, but he was known mainly as the guy who carved, you know, only the most amazing sculpture ever, the David in Florence. He thought of himself as a sculptor, not a painter. So when Pope Julius II decided Michelangelo should be the guy to paint frescoes 
On all 5,000 square feet of the Sistine Chapel ceiling, the room where new popes are elected, he said, uh, no thanks. For one thing, he was in the middle of another project for Pope Julius, carving a massive marble tomb for him. The chapel would be a distraction. Also, he suspected other artists, jealous of his success, had told the Pope he'd be just the guy to paint the chapel so they could watch him fail. But when the Pope says paint, you paint. So Michelangelo did, with difficulty. Contrary to popular belief, he didn't work lying on his back. He stood on special platforms attached to the walls, his brush held high, paint falling onto his face. Midway through the four-year job, he wrote an only half-joking poem about his agony. I've already grown a goiter from this torture, hunched up here like a cat in Lombardy. I am not in the right place. I am not a painter. When he finished the frescoes, though, Michelangelo seemed to understand he'd done a pretty good job. And history confirmed it. Hundreds of years later, Goethe wrote, Without having seen the Sistine Chapel, one can form no appreciable idea of what one man is capable of achieving. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Marco Leone, the owner of Exit Bar and Gallery in Rome, Italy, very near the Vatican and the Sistine Chapel. Uh, Marco, also, you're an artist and you display art in your bar. Is that right? Yes, I am an artist and my bar is the personal gallery of my painting. That's your personal gallery. Is this Michelangelo quality art? Is it as good as the Sistine Chapel? <laughs> it's a little bit different, but of course. Of course, I love Michelangelo. Of course, as do we all. Um, so tell us about your Sistine Chapel-inspired drink. Oh, okay. Uh, we have a, an expression in Italy. When you make a very difficult work, a very hard work, like Michelangelo, we say you give it your blood. You give it your blood, like you give it your all, we would say. Yeah, so I wanted to make a variation on a Bloody Mary. Uh. And this is, uh, I name I name my cocktail... The blood of Michelangelo. Okay. <laughs> so what's the difference between this? Normally a a, oh. a Bloody Mary has vodka and tomato juice. And... The ingredients are similar to the classic one. But instead of vodka, I use Prosecco. And Prosecco is a, the classic Italian sparkling wine, you know? Oh, yeah, of right? course. It's kind of a champagne-like. And a splash of grappa to make more strong. Oh, some grappa. Oh, my God. That's a very (laughs) strong Italian spirit. But the rest is the same. You've got the the tomato juice, lime juice. Yes. I would like to give this cocktail to Michelangelo. Maybe he can feel better after I work so hard. You know that the Bloody Mary is full of vitamins. Vitamins, yes. He needed that. Brendan, some sources say the Sistine Chapel frescoes were the Mm -hmm. first frescoes Michelangelo ever did on his own. First time out, he nails it. Some say, even though he didn't want to do it in the first place. Imagine if he didn't want to do cold fusion. (laughs) 
everything would have yep. changed. The Dimitichis would have all been driving around in nuclear carriages. It's <laughs> it a different a, world. A wonderland. Yeah. People, uh, you can mix up a blood of Michelangelo for the brooding artist in your life. The recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. Our History Lesson with Booze segment is brought to you by The Cocktail Computer. And now, the soundtrack in which your favorite or soon-to-be favorite artist DJs your dinner party. Today, our guest is Rory. The Atlanta-based 19-year-old musician caught the eye of Kanye West with his mixtape called Indigo Child. On his debut album, All We Need, he blends folk and hip-hop in songs that range from feel-good to political. Here he is with some tunes. Hey, yo, what's good? This is Rory, and I put together a little soundtrack to get your dinner party started. So uh, check it out. So my first song will be Rye, The Fall. Rye is like this generation's Sade. It's two guys, Hannibal and Milos, and they just make the most dynamic duo ever, man. But you would be surprised that Milos, this vocalist, is actually a man. And it's an amazing voice, man. It's like one of my favorite voices so far. So I'm DJing at this party. The dinner is taking place in the middle of a forest. So imagine a 300-foot-long table. Everybody's wearing velvet white sheets and drinking wine, and they're just chilling. Yeah, man, they flew in like the best chefs from the world, you know, to make part a vegan feast, part seafood. Then you got your poultry, and at the end of the table, it's all the beef and the pork. So everybody can go find what they like easily. And the next track I play at my party is Just Friends by Amy Winehouse. It's never safe for us. This song is at the same time as relaxing as it is provocative. How it just turns into this gentle, chill thing, but at the same time it's a party because you hear the horns going like, mm, 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 and you just feel like having a good time, man. I heard her hits and all that when I was 14-ish. She was everywhere. But I, I never got extremely into her until I watched the movie, Amy. And you know, it really takes a lot for a movie to evoke so much emotion from me. I mean, I've never cried because of a movie until seeing Amy. You know, but it's not easy to be a person that went through so much pain, you know, and translate it into songs. That's what makes her very genuine, one of a kind. And by the way, this this party is not happening in, like, present time, okay? It's taking place in a post-apocalyptic world where humans have learned to live with nature, which is why they have a table out in the middle of the woods. You know what I'm saying? So it's in 3,500, and Amy Winehouse is still popping. So the third song it has to be Sweet Life by Frank Ocean. Sweet life, sweet life, sweet life. Sweet life, 
listen to this song, pay close attention to the nice little fluttering, high-noted keys. That really completely makes the song. That's, that's the part of the song that gives you butterflies and makes you feel the magic. You've had a landscaper and a housekeeper since you were born. The sunshine always kept you warm. Sweet life. You know, you're in this type of, like, human-made heaven that, you know, it's the sweet life. You know, mangoes, peaches, and limes. Mango, peaches, and limes. Sweet life. All right, you know, so, yeah, we, we're getting into the party. We're all feeling the vibe, right? You know, so I, I go back up to the DJ booth, and I play my own song, Kingdom Come. There's people lying, children crying, wonder why this earth is dying. Yeah, she's dying, yeah. My hometown in Stone Mountain, Georgia, is one of the major hubs of the Ku Klux Klan, you know? Growing up around that and seeing all that, it just inspired my career and my existence on this world to be the complete opposite, man, and to embody, like, love and embracing people because, like, I've seen enough hatred. Dinner Party soundtrack from Rory. His debut album is called All We Need. He's on tour now. All right, we're going to take a break. Coming up, actor Brie Larson tells us the secret to crosswords is cheating. And later, Gloria Steinem tells us it's okay not to smile. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the best of this week's arts and culture condensed into one convenient hour. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of a show we aired in November. It is so worth a second listen. Coming up, we've got activist and icon Gloria Steinem telling you how to deal with politically challenged in-laws. And actor Mary Louise Parker reads her mail mail. That's two different spellings of mail. You'll get it. Uh But first... Let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Brie Larson. She's known for standout character roles in films like Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, the Mark Wahlberg drama The Gambler, and she played Amy Schumer's sister in the hit Trainwreck. But her latest project is a star turn in the film Room. That's right. She plays a woman abducted as a teen who is kept locked in a shed with the five-year-old she had with her captor. Brie won a Golden Globe for the role, and she's up for an Oscar for Best Actress. When we spoke, I first noted the last film she starred in, the indie Short Term 12, was also about a woman who protects an endangered kid. I don't know. I think, I I do think part of it's just a coincidence, but the other part is that I find it very um, difficult to wrap my brain around being the lead of a film. It just seems like too much of my face out there in the world. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be another reason behind it like what's the reason for being a starring vehicle of something like what what's the purpose of the story and so in the case of short term 12 and and in room it's it's exploring these themes that are bigger than me and that are worth fighting for so it makes that fear i have of exposing myself too much or of falling down a path of vanity disappear well that's interesting because you've been an actress 
for most of your life. I mean, you start. I think you started at, at age six or something. Yeah, yeah. So what? Like that. It surprises me that it's difficult for you to put yourself out there. You've been doing it most of your life. Well, it's different when you're a kid. You have no. You don't feel self conscious in any way. Mm. And for. I mean, years of auditioning when I was a kid, I thought that auditioning was the job. I thought that I got the job already. It wasn't until I was maybe like 11 where suddenly I was like, wait a second here, there's more to this. <laughs> wait, I've now got to actually go and my face gets seen by other people? Well, yes. And then even then when you're a kid, it's like you're on a show that's on past your bedtime. And so you have no sense of you being out there in the world. There was no social media. There was none of this stuff. So you didn't get this reflection at all. And I mean, we've really turned the volume up on exposure for actors. Do you remember the first time that you kind of encountered yourself or your work out in the world? I'm trying to remember the first time. It does sound really freaky as I'm talking about it's it. It's very just... weird. I mean, I'll say most recently I was on a plane. It was a long flight. And the gambler was on the in-flight movie. And I was the sixth person in this row of a family of five. And the dad had seen the gambler twice already. And he just wouldn't stop talking about how great the movie was. Mm. And uh, he convinced his entire family to watch the movie. Then, and then they spent the remainder of the film making commentary on it, never realizing... <laughs> <laughs> that I was sitting next to them and I just kept my head down and I was journaling. I realized that like my hair was the same color, the same length. I had it pulled back and sort of halfway. I had glasses on. I was tripping out because I was like, this is the most I've ever looked like any of my characters ever. <laughs> and this person, this whole family has zero idea. And then I got this sort of like sick thrill out of it mm -hmm. of like how far can I go with this and so I started walking with them to customs as they continued oh, to talk about the movie you're creeping me and out now Brie. they never well I just I'm always afraid of not being anonymous anymore it's the big thing that you have to give up it's and it's the hardest one for me personally because I love the world and I love to people watch and I love to be able to notice small encounters. So the idea for, is so scary to lose that. And here was, a, here was an example where it wasn't happening. Oh, it was so, I was like, it was such a relief. I was like, oh, what a gift. Um, let's, let's return to the story a little bit. I'm, I'm, it's a little bit of a pivot because there are aspects of this film that are so dark, but they are fascinating. Did you actually research stories of abductions like the one portrayed in the film? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I I was able to find out about as much as anybody if you're sort of deep Googling on a subject matter like this. And as the stories become older, more we become more open with some of the information and they, we even have photos of some of the living situations, which were helpful in some ways. But truthfully, we're not telling a true crime story certainly and i you know the second half of the movie here's a spoiler alert by the way the second half of the movie does not take place in this room and is about life in in the real world well that's in the trailer so don't worry you're not the one to ruin it for <laughs> <Good>. people <laughs> but i will say though for you as a as you know a person acting this role and researching it i mean this is a sort of story that honestly I have avoided learning much about when I see, you know, a little hint of these kind of abductions on TV. I purposely don't follow what's going on because it's such a nightmarish scenario. Yeah. How did steeping yourself in that world affect you? Well, you I had to just do 
little tiny bits of research at a time. I mean, I had eight months to really get everything together. And it was much easier when I was talking with a trauma specialist because they help people move through this. Not just these particular situations, but you learn about all the different types of trauma that a person can experience. And then you get to learn about the flip side of with time and with the help of the right people, we overcome them. And so the story to me became more exciting when it was about surviving and liberation and this concept that life doesn't end. It just keeps going. And even when you feel like you're handed something that is just so painful and so awful and you think, well, this is it. There's, how could life possibly go on? It does. I want to move on to our, our final questions, which we ask everyone on the show. One of them is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? <laughs> what would I not want someone to ask me? Yeah. At this point, if I've read the book Room... Oh, they, I would think that that would be a given. <laughs> Thank you for understanding. <laughs> it's a weird thing when people are like, what an amazing performance. So did you read the book? And you're like, what? The how author the, wrote the screenplay. How is that? How could you? <laughs> I apologize on behalf of journalism. It's all right. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Something that you don't know is that I do the crossword puzzle every day. New York Times crossword puzzle. Are you good at it, though, is the question. I can totally get through Monday and Tuesday. Thursday from time to time, like last Thursdays, for example, I wanted to light on fire. (laughs) I was so upset about it. Um, But my whole thing is you have to finish it. So even if you have to look up a couple of things, then you learn. All right. For me, it's about learning. That seems very positive. I'm going to put it out to our listenership whether that counts. I'm not saying that I'm like the most honest crossword puzzler. (laughs) I'm just saying that I enjoy doing them. Brie Larson starred the film Room. It opens nationwide this week. And Brendan, again, first half of the film is harrowing, but it is not a horror movie. It's very humane, very worth seeing. All right. And folks, last year we spoke to Brie about cannibal lobsters. It's true. You heard right. You can hear that interview at dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. Mary Louise Parker won Emmys for portraying a marijuana-dealing suburban mom on the hit show Weeds and for her role in the HBO adaptation of the play Angels in America. Her new debut book is called Dear Mr. You. It's a collection of open letters to various men. Today we overhear a missive to her late grandfather. Dear Grandpa, the world is at war again. That's twice now in your lifetime. Your only son has been overseas for 11 months. The last you heard, he and his fellow soldiers were going to make a beachhead landing on the shores of the Philippines. If your boy John was involved, you can bet it went off like gangbusters. He's 19 years old and remarkably good at life. If there were a way to spy on him at this moment, you'd see a young man wrapped inside an army-issue poncho and sleeping in the corner of a rice paddy. Artillery is firing across the road, but that sound is lost in the rain, which falls in thick black sheets. And your boy sleeps long enough for that rain to surround and lift him. When he wakes, he is floating on his back. 
He will hit the double decades in two and a half weeks, and you have a plan that's been brewing. You go to the only bakery you know, which is two towns over. The woman behind the counter is wiping her eyes on her apron by the time you ask to buy the biggest loaf of rye bread she has. She's just gotten an earful about your son and refuses to charge you for the bread, also throwing in a few cinnamon buns. You thank her up and down and tell her you enjoy the way her blouse matches her eyes. You have a bottle of gin for the drive back, but you run out of it around the same time you run out of fuel and have to pull over to the side of the road. You hitch a ride back to the house with a nice fellow, a minor like yourself, and tell him about your plan for your son's birthday. It's a darn good plan. In 43 years, your granddaughter will be found hitchhiking by the side of the road near San Francisco. She will stand there with two young men who will encourage her to hike up her skirt and look as winsome as possible by the off-ramp. They will have constructed a sign out of cardboard to catch the eye of someone nice enough to pull over. The sign will say, Marin, please, we've read Sartre. It will start to rain as the group drives across the Golden Gate Bridge. Your granddaughter loves the rain, as you do, the grandfather she'll never meet. By the time she's born, you are dead, and your wife has married your brother. It's better that you know none of this now, though, as you return home and head to the kitchen. You slice the bread through the middle and dig out the guts down to the crust. You take the bottle of hard Kentucky whiskey from its bag and admire the label, which is blurry. You nearly fall off the kitchen stool trying to read it. You lay the sacrificial bottle in the crust coffin, thanking the powers that be for making you so damned ingenious. You chuckle as you wrap it up. When your boy sees a box with his name on it, he tears it open for any sign of home. He'd been digging foxholes to wait out the night when the first load of mail in weeks reached him by way of New Guinea. He digs through the newspaper and finds your cake by now pitiful and moldy. But it's from you, so he knows to look beneath the surface for the joke. He unties the twine around the bread and looks inside, letting go a belly laugh and waving his hand up to the sky. The other soldiers slap him on the back and wish him happy birthday while eyeing the bottle's throat like the slope of a woman's neck they could grasp with their muddy, frozen hands. They raise their rifles and fists up to the skies. For now, they let out their best cheer. It doesn't rouse you from where you lie face down on the rug in West Virginia, talking to a son lost too deep in the jungle to hear you. You wonder if they have the same locusts in that part of the world where your boy is now. Locusts. You were fond of the sound, but they ruin discovery. The way they rise and fall in the same exact patterns every night tells you what time it is before you get a chance to peek out a window for yourself. See where the moon ended up tacked to the sky. Mary Louise Parker with an excerpt from her piece, Dear Grandpa. You can read the whole thing at dinnerpartydownload.org. That story comes from her new book, Dear Mr. You, which again is written as a series of letters to men, both real and hypothetical. Everyone from family members to whatever anonymous guy farmed the oysters she once fed her dad. Mm. I recently sat down to speak with Mary Louise about it, and I first asked how she hit upon the concept. There were two pieces that I'd written for Esquire. I used to write for Esquire quite a lot. I still do from time to time. But one piece, they'd asked me just to write about men in general. 
it came out as a letter. I don't okay. know why, but uh, like when you sat down, mm-hmm. and it was a letter I really honestly felt I could have written for like the next twenty five years. Mm. And that was a letter in, to men in general. It was open letter. Okay. Mm-hmm. It appeared in the magazine, actually next to pictures of me in my underwear making a pie, which nobody meant really mentioned the piece to me. They really only mentioned like the underwear. I had to read that piece because to prepare for yeah. this interview and. You're actually not wearing underwear in some of the pictures. You're just in an apron making pie. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And then I'm on the floor and it's, I'm taking my shirt off. I just off. assumed you spilled something on yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I just had to take my pants off because I spilled flour. <laughs> so you wrote oh, this You wrote, wrote this thing. Piece, these and pictures. then I, I, quite, I really liked writing it. Uh, and then I wrote another piece later. They asked me to write about my father, which initially also oddly came out as a letter, began Hmm. as a letter. In the end, it was. It didn't appear in the magazine as a letter at all, but it was direct address. And there was something about those two pieces that felt like the anchors of something. So this book, although it's a group of letters to men, it's a memoir. And so I'm wondering when... Not really. No? Okay. I mean, I don't mean to be... All right. Adversarial. (laughs) No, no, I encourage. I just, I never thought of it. It never occurred to me that it was a memoir, but now that I see there's a lot more elasticity in the term memoir and mm. what that means, now I see that it does sort of qualify as a memoir. But I wasn't overburdened by some set of rules like, this has to be what happened. So as an actor, you play a fictional character. Everyone knows the rules, right? They see you on TV. They're like, that's not Mary Louise. You know, your friends, your family, people well, kind of get the idea. supposedly, but I mean, they still try to give me pot in the street. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, because you did an excellent job and Thank you were in that you. role for many, many years. But I'm saying in books, you, you maybe something different is going to happen here because it's filled with a lot of revelatory information mm-hmm. if one were to read it that way. I can't really weigh myself down with other people's narratives about my life mm-hmm. or their assumptions. So or... that, that wasn't a concern of yours, right? Well, I was also in control of it. And I, you get so accustomed to people misrepresenting you or misquoting you. This was There was a real luxury in being able to be the architect of what people were going to actually get to see mm-hmm. instead of selecting like yeah. this interview where I'll edit it to make it sound exactly. how I want. No, one of the good <laughs> things about radio, it's a little trickier to do that than it is in that's, print. Everyone looks hot on the radio, though. That's nice. That's why That's why right. I chose this gig. Thanks. Well, you look pretty good. I guess. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so it sounds like the Esquire idea was maybe the, the seed of, of, this, of these letters, but you did follow through and it is all about men. Or they're mm-hmm. all letters to men, mm-hmm. men in your life. Was that simply because that was the the initial idea, or once you started to do it, you're like, you know, this is a this is a fun thing. Like, why? I think partially it was because what was unleashed when I started to write that open letter to men that just felt so, I don't know, it just you felt had a lot so to say. bottomless. <laughs> and uh, also the other piece, which is my father, which is mm-hmm. why things male and are so I'm so drawn to that. And I had an extremely charismatic and heroic and tremendous father. I was really lucky. And that's part of the reason why I've always sought mm-hmm. a certain kind of male approval or why I've always been very passionate about men and, you know, like drawn to them as friends and as lovers. And I think that he had so much to do with it. And in many ways, the book is really about him and about at the end of the book, The Oyster Picker, because it's about the man that we don't know yeah. who also affects us, who we will never meet, who will never know us, and who we never stop to thank. Yeah. And it's less, to me, a memoir than a bunch of thank you notes. 
Did you see any patterns about masculinity generally or about at least the men that you've gravitated towards in your life? I saw some of my own patterns. And it's massively liberating to see where you've had a hand in something that caused you pain or Mm. that caused you discomfort. If you can see it specifically, oh, I did this, which wrought that, or Mm. I asked for this, or I allowed that again and again. Uh, And to see that and to to sort of see that on a bigger scale was really useful. Mm. Not that I'm going to change, (laughs) but but it was useful. Mary Louise Parker, still Mary Louise Parker. Her book is called (laughs) Dear Mr. You, and it's in stores now. All right, time for a break. When we return, Miss Gloria Steinem tells us how to behave like gentlemen Mm -hmm. when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. In a few minutes, we'll play a brand new song from Brooklyn duo Chairlift. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week is one of the past century's foremost feminist scholars, writers, and activists, Gloria Steinem. She was a founding editor of the hugely popular feminist periodical Ms. Magazine. She has written several books, published and edited collections, and for the past 30 years, she has traveled the world speaking, educating, and organizing around feminism and other causes. Today, she is still considered one of the leaders of the women's rights movement, and she's got a new memoir. It's a recollection of her many travels. It's called My Life on the Road. Ms. Steinem, it's an honor to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. It was fun writing that introduction because we knew that we would just use Miss Steinem. There's no question about how we would <laughs> address you. We would, yeah, address you. Uh, so this book is a memoir, but I read somewhere that you didn't like the word memoir because you thought it was elite. Yeah, and also when Jack Kerouac wrote a road book, I don't think they called it a memoir. That's mm-hmm. all right. That's, that's true. true. <laughs> so you, you wanted the same rights as Jack Kerouac? Or you well, just... <laughs> it just sounded kind of hotsy-totsy, if you know what I mean. And, yes. And also, although this is, of course, personal, it's not, uh, you know, love affair upon love affair. I don't want people to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, there are a few love affairs, but why, why did you decide on this title then? Well, actually, in the very beginning, and for many years, it was called America as if everyone mattered. But because of the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. I thought, no, you know, at this moment in time, that Mm. phrase belongs where it is. Yes. So this was actually the subtitle. My Life on the Road, and now it's the title. And you're going to call it As If Everyone Matters. Does that connect to the idea that you feel like America is much more diverse than politicians and other people think of it, and they don't know that because they don't spend time on the road? Yes, it's that, and it's also that we have hierarchies of all different kinds in this country, and I find that traveling, they begin to disappear if you listen or talk or get off the beaten path or... Mm. If you just listen, you discover that those hierarchies don't mean too much, that your expectations are almost always wrong. So I was going for a little uh, kind of sarcasm, as if everyone matters. (laughs) And you've been, I mean, you speak from experience. You've been on the road from a very young age. Uh, You write that your father was an itinerant antiques dealer. Can you describe some of those early childhood experiences traveling? Well, we lived in southern Michigan, where my father had a small summer resort, but he hated the cold weather. So as soon as it got chilly, and that was around Halloween or something, 
I would be removed from school and my sister, me, my parents, and several dogs would pile into yeah. <laughs> uh, what were then quite small house trailers and begin our trek to Florida or California, which my father financed by buying and selling antiques and jewelry along along the road, which he bought at auctions and so on. I mean, we never started out with enough money to get where we were going, but somehow mm. it always worked. And you, and you were obviously a passenger, but your role as passenger continues. You still don't drive. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you talk about how that's afforded you a different view on the world. Well, I try to explain that, look, if you don't drive, your adventure, your trip begins the moment you leave your door. Mm -hmm. And that's why I ended up telling a lot of taxi stories. I mean, I could tell subway stories, too, but I thought taxis were more universal. Does one bit of taxi driver wisdom stand out for you? Um, My best political advice half the time comes from taxi drivers. Mm. Oh, really? For instance, well, I remember right after 9-11... Um, in New York. Te- we were kind of driving in silence, and we saw what turned out to be a very common graffiti, which nobody knows where it came from, but it was very moving. Uh, our grief is not a cry for war. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And the taxi driver said to me, you know, we I feel this way because we were here, and we saw the destruction. Mm-hmm. The, in the rest of the country, they feel guilty that they weren't here, and they're going to want revenge. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very wise. In the military, they actually call that ground truth. Like, you know, there's military intelligence that people gather, but ground truth is what the soldiers report back. Like, this is what's really happening here. Like, this is what if I'd known that, I could have called the book Ground Truth. Well, maybe that could be your maybe that that could be your follow up book. Yes, and we get we get some royalties for that though. Just beware. That's that's right. Um, Um, So, of course, along with traveling around, you've been witness to many waves of feminism since you made. This your life work. You know, what's the biggest way the movement changed from then to now? I think in the beginning it was all about consciousness because the idea of a role for women, a role for men was just so ingrained that it was confused with human nature. Uh. And if you didn't go along with it, you were regarded as crazy. So I think the first wave of consciousness was discovering that we weren't crazy, the system was crazy, and this is big, this is huge. Then we had to name issues. I mean, say domestic violence didn't exist as a phrase, it was just called life, so (laughs) (laughs) there were no police procedures, really. I mean, in the cases of domestic violence, police really counted success as getting the victim back with the victimizer. That was their idea of success. So in, in that and many other areas, it was listening to people's experience, stating one's own experience, naming issues, and beginning to change laws. What, what do you see as the state of feminism today? Because it, it, in a way, it, it seems to me that it's more powerful than ever. It really does feel like changes in the air. But it also seems maybe less united as a movement. For example, I see a lot of disagreement right now about whether it's feminist to be in favor of sex work as a choice for women. Is that, do you think that's accurate? Is it more fractured? You know, I don't know, because our perception of it may be so influenced by what we see on the web, you know, which yeah. we, we didn't have before. Uh, and I think, I mean, in the, in the case that you mentioned, for instance, I also called it sex work in the 70s. And then I ended up uh, marching with the National Welfare Rights Organization in Nevada because the argument that it was work like any other was being used to force women into prostitution and off welfare, off unemployment. Mm. And then I saw the same thing happening in Germany. So 
I began to realize that calling it work like any other meant that people could be forced into it. So the yeah. idea was basically like you should, if, if, why are you on welfare when you can always be a sex worker? Exactly. So, uh, you know, I've never again called it sex work after that because it has consequences. So in a second, we're going to ask you to respond to our listeners' kind of etiquette questions, but uh, I wanted to ask you about one of the philosophies you discuss in your book, a life philosophy called Ask the Turtle. Well, uh, I this happened to me a really long time ago when I was in college, but it took me a long time to realize that it was a, a lesson that could apply to life itself. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I took a geology course, which I believed to be the only science I could handle, <laughs> handle right? And... <laughs> We were looking at the Connecticut River Valley, and I, of course, had was paying no attention because I had wandered up a dirt road and found a gigantic mud turtle on the side of a asphalt road, it had crawled up, you know, from the river. Mm. And I thought, obviously, this turtle was going to go up on the asphalt road and be crushed by a car. So I picked up this huge snapping <laughs> yeah. Yeah, turtle, and. Uh-huh. slowly managed to get it all the way back down the road and slipped it in the river and it was as it was swimming away the professor came up behind me and he said you know that turtle has probably spent maybe a month crawling up that road to lay its eggs in the earth on the side of them yeah <laughs> right yeah you destroyed its egg laying process by accident yes absolutely i set it back a month i mean i felt terrible but it took me, you know, living in India and coming to understand something about organizing to understand that that was a kind of life rule. Always ask the turtle. What, what it needs, basically. Yeah, people who are experiencing a problem are the ones who know the solution. Yeah. And imposing it from way up above doesn't usually work. Mm, yeah. And we should uh, pause a second to let folks know they're listening to The Dinner Party Download. Our guest is Gloria Steinem. And Gloria, uh, a lot of our listeners wrote in etiquette questions for you to answer. Are you ready for these? Yes, I would not say that I am regarded as overly polite. <laughs> well, <laughs> perfect. You've be, we've had everyone from uh, Mel Brooks to heavy metal drummers answer these questions, okay. so I'm sure okay. you'll do fine. Here is something from Alexis in Los Angeles. Alexis writes, given your book about traveling... Have you ever made a faux pas in a different cultural setting, American or internationally? If so, how did you recover? Uh, What that brings to mind is people's varying ideas about what's okay to reveal about themselves in different cultures. Hmm. I mean, in England, you reveal nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the polite Uh, thing to do is to never tell anybody anything. Yeah, and you never tell anybody. You discuss the weather, whatever. In India, it's quite the opposite. People feel quite free to ask you... Very personal questions. Yeah. I mean, maybe it has caste or class implications there, but, you know, on a train, you know, somebody will say to me, you know, are you married, or if not, why not, and Mm -hmm. what do your parents do, and why do Americans all carry guns, and, you know. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So the art form is not trying to change yourself at your core, but trying to figure out how to fit in to the uh, to what's sure. okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the question right. is, is, so you've clearly, you've experienced probably making a faux pas, not knowing what the cultural rules were, but how do you get out of it? Well, you just say you made a faux pas. You just have to say it. You have own to, it. You have to own it. Yeah, yes. Right. yes, that's right. right. Forgive yeah, me. Yeah, and if you own it, people are usually okay with it. So if you're in Britain, you say, I'm sorry I asked you your name. Forgive, <laughs> forgive me. I'll no, just return saying, to talk about the weather. Yes. But in it, the the way I, I realized this is that, you know, people would say to me in London, you know, we've for 40 years we've been wondering why that man wears 
there's one black shoe and one green shoe. Perhaps you're an American. You can ask anything. <laughs> they set, they put you yeah, up right. to it. <laughs> you were doing them a service. Maybe all these questions are secretly submitted from British people trying to have Americans give them the answers. Uh, all right. Our next question comes from Sarah. She says she's from North Bergen, New Jersey. Uh, and she writes, what is the best way to respond to people, usually men, who command me to smile and, quote, be happy? I'm assuming blind rage is not polite. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good. That's true, Sarah. You know, that it, it, is, it is outrageous because it is so gendered, that mm. idea. I mean, I don't think that women say to men, why don't you smile? Mm. <clears throat> and the most routinized uh, form of it is that I've encountered is flight attendants mm. who, who mm. used to complain to me, maybe slightly better now, I don't know, but... You know, they would say, even my face is not my own. I'm supposed to smile all the time. And they were, you know, very stringent rules as well, to. I can tell you, they're not following that rule that much anymore on flights. <laughs> yeah. But I, from my experience. You know, I think I would either just ignore it mm-hmm. or say, would you say that to a man? Mm hmm. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, happy. on yeah. the other hand, like, that's kind of your job, though, is to confront people. <laughs> is that the thing to do? At, uh, you've just met somebody. Well, at a party. I don't think, I'm, I think it's all of our jobs to mm. not do it in a hostile way, but do it in an authentic way. Well, you talk, you've talked about some of the, in the book, you discuss if people call uh, you a name to say thank you in a way, just to kind of jam their radar. Yeah, well, that's, and people, and women do say to me, you know, what if somebody calls them a bitch or something, you know, what to do. And it, the best thing I've found so far is just to say thank you. Take take the power away from that word. All right, here's a, here's a question from Hannah in Somerville, Massachusetts. And she writes, first of all, Miss Steinem, you're incredible. <laughs> that's what <laughs> hey, Hannah there says. There you go. That was very polite of her. <laughs> she My, doesn't need our advice. You can say thank you very happily to that. My yeah. question, she says... When my partner posts on Facebook about feminist issues, okay, all issues, my conservative father-in-law often adds his own take there, at length. When we don't respond to him, he assumes he's either won an argument or that we're mad at him. When we do respond, he takes it personally and pouts. How do we handle the situation? We've talked with him about this before, but I don't think he gets how social networking works. Well, I guess you could just put after what his response is. That's my father-in-law. <laughs> For you. <laughs> With an exclamation point. Yeah, right, right, right. Actually, isn't that insulting? Because I, yeah. I have a brother-in-law who has a different feelings about guns than I do. And I think if I said, like, that's my brother-in-law, he would proudly be mm-hmm. like, yes, this is my opinion. I mean, I could yeah. give a, a longer answer. Dorothy Dennerstein, a brilliant writer, always said that there were two functions of family. Mm-hmm. One is obviously sustenance and also to learn what different age stages are like. And the second is to learn how to get along with and even love people you disagree with. Hmm. That that's really important for the future of the human race. Otherwise, in the rest of our lives, we pick people we share interests and values with. So I thought to myself, that's brilliant. You know, why didn't somebody say that to us in the first place? Because the prison is when you think you're supposed to agree with your blood relatives. But Uh, if you see it as a useful exercise for everybody to learn learn how to get along with and and negotiate with and tell the truth with and love, you know, and appreciate people you don't agree with. Yeah. All right. that's well, the, there you go, Hannah. That's the most proactive way I've ever heard of describing what Facebook can do. <laughs> or also how to well, survive it's a, Thanksgiving. It's a little long. <laughs> no. And in fact, that was the exact right length of answer because we are out of time. Hmm. Gloria Steinem, thank you so much for answering our audience's questions. 
Well, yes, but I am completely open to other people's responses. Gloria Steinem. Her new book is called My Life on the Road. And folks, should you have etiquette questions, don't pose those to a turtle. Send them to us via our website. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Or call our hotline. The number is 929-335-3653. That translates to 929-335-DNLD. And that concludes the Dinner Party Download for this week. But don't frown. You can keep up with us all week on Instagram or Twitter, where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker produces the Dinner Party Download. Nina Potok is our associate producer. And Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our interns are Carla Javier and Christian Coons. Daniel Ramirez engineered. Larissa Anderson is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Carolyn Polachek and Patrick Wimberly are the duo behind Chairlift. Their third album, Moth, came out last week. Here's a song from it called Cha-Ching. Bon Appetit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I don't know, man. How do you think we should end the show? That's a good question. Hey, Turtle, what do you think? What? I don't know. I'm just a metaphor. Oh, yeah. Right.